Yeah, took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, I've never, never, ever been a sport fan, ever. You don't see. On it, like, just nothing. Surfing, and I don't really love that. That's just an excuse to go for a swim. Like, no sports. Apart from four weeks in 1990 when I was 10. And maybe in 94. Mm-hmm. And then when I heard the Jack Charlton had died this week, obviously that. Um, what's it? What's the name? The Dar? What's the name of that tune? The Horse Lips. The uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and uh, th- that's the Horse Lips um, version of it. It's an Irish tune that I can't remember if it's um, the Dar- Darren the Chief Dirge. Neil's March or something. This is embarrassing. Both of us should know. You should know it. I'm the idiot. Ha ha. Uh, <laughs> um. Anyway, it, thinking of that, hearing that, it dawned on me that I actually think that the because I was ten. I think maybe that year for Christmas I was given a little red um, single cassette player and I had the tape of Ireland Italian ID. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised I was so young because I was obsessed with that tape. I would just play it over and over. Would that have been the same time as The Simpsons? No, that would have been a little bit later. But it was played it over and over and over and... I can't remember the other songs that was on it. Obviously, the Put Him Under Pressure was on there. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I loved it. It was just fever pitch. And then when I was in Ireland last year, I actually got to see Horseups play. And they played at the that. At the, they played that in one of their encores. Uh-huh. It was classic. It was classic. <laughs> now, the reason I'm bringing this up too is Dom and our guest today, Kevin Crawford, get a little bit sentimental about another classic bit of... Uh, we do. We get... Oh, no we, spoilers. We have a little excursion, a little nostalgic excursion into the the, the thickets of uh, 1980s snooker coverage, which will which will, which will will really appeal to anyone listening in, in the UK or Ireland, particularly um, when, you know, it's just a... Just a and when that bit comes up, just imagine me as like the nephew and the two uncles that are taking them around the vaults of their memories and I was just glassy eyed looking from left to right going oh whoa is this what it was like I loved it so thanks for that gents that was lovely it was lovely in fact we should play a wee bit of the theme music it's like the theme music sends shivers down my spine maybe on the hedgerow so today's guest did we mention it's Kevin Crawford Kevin Crawford of Lunasa, one of the big beasts of Irish music. The big beast. <laughs> Flute player, whistle player, incredible recording artist, fantastic thinker about the music, just great chat. An incredibly generous man too and and just knows how to tell a good story. What other field, right? In what other field of human endeavour can you actually get to talk to someone of, of this calibre, right? Just by phoning them up or, you know, sending them a message saying hey do you fancy a chat i mean it just it just goes to the heart of um something really valuable and important about about the music right completely and um yeah it's beautiful so um yeah should we just go let's get in there here we go kevin crawford enjoy Thank you. 
Kevin Crawford, welcome to the Balani Pilgrims podcast. How are you doing, lads? Absolute pleasure. Um, I'm I'm a big fan, so I might be a little starstruck in the first few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, likewise. So, what what did we just hear? Um, yeah, I thought I'd get up and running with a couple of lively tunes and a jig into a reel there. Old John's and the Longford Tinker, and there are a couple of tunes that I have kind of reworked recently. I've always known them, but I I I hadn't kind of put them together until oh gosh, I'm going to say maybe the beginning of the lockdown, possibly. Um, so it's my lockdown selection. But what I had to do to make them work, uh, it's a kind of a a little nerdy thing I do I I end up a lot of the time changing the typical key of a tune so that it might sit with another tune that you wouldn't normally get the opportunity to play it with so the old John's jig for instance there um I was playing it one day and I realized that the opening phrase if you played it as a reel sounded like the Longford Tinker but the problem was it was in the wrong key so I had to change (laughs) old John's from a minor to B minor, so that then when I when I made that transition from the jig into the reel, it it kind of seemed like it, they were related. Woohoo! So yeah. is that is that is that a part of of music? Something that really gets you going, like on on picking things in that in that manner. Yeah, I mean, I love it when when little gems kind of appear or, or little nuggets, I should say, appear um, in a tune and you're, you're listening and you think, oh, you know, there's a little motif or just even sometimes it it can be just the way your your fingers fall on the instrument and it might remind you of, of another tune. Um, and then, you know, you go all about just trying to make them interesting and make them fit and, and come up with something that possibly is is slightly a new a new take on on them you know um the longford tinker i've always loved it the real but it's so well uh are so strongly associated with uh the bathy band um their first album they they just made such an incredible recording and and version and arrangement of it that you know i didn't want to go near it almost because it it had already been yeah. done as well as it could possibly be done and and with Matt Malloy you know the greatest flute player that's out there doing it so I needed to have some something to make it mine uh, and thankfully the jig and then leading into the reel I think kind of gives it a, a different twist that's so interesting how you because I've often wondered that about um, as the volume of sort of well-exposed tunes Mm. increases exponentially. You know, like in the 70s, there was a few albums, you know, it's not like there was billions and billions and billions of tunes like there seems to be now out there in the public realm. So how do you find stuff that that will work for you? And how do you find those, um, how do you make those well-established pieces of the kind of musical canon stand up for you? You know what I mean? It's funny, it probably would have flipped as well because at one stage before recorded music, there would have been the the chestnut tunes, like those cl- great tunes which were associated with people. Mm. And I would imagine you'd, you'd, you'd probably try and copy that person rather than y- it would be a, a thing to take away. So if you went down the country or you saw someone play one time, you'd go, geez, I love the way he he turned that phrase. I'm going to try and incorporate that kind of 
playing where once we started having recorded music I reckon a lot of people would shy away from that too because as you said a lot, a lot of the greats have ownership over mm. over the recording because it's such a such a classic version of it yeah it, it, I don't know if that makes sense no it does and it, it's a it's a constant kind of a struggle if you like but it's also a very nice uh, challenge um, is to you know try and put your own stamp on something but there's a kind of a time frame if you like associated with it too I think you know that was 1975 and the Bathy band did that I think I've kind of left it sit long enough for me to have a go at it um, <laughs> you know I think I think um, there is a trend uh, and it's in every type of music whereby a recording comes out and then everybody falls in love with that tune and, and then lots of people want to play it and then therefore lots of people there ends up being like maybe a bunch of recordings of a tune just because people have kind of shone the light back on it but I, I try not to fall for those tunes because you know then you know you're just you know you're falling in with a bunch of other people's kind of versions so mm-hmm. uh, I I do a little bit of a a 50-50 on it um, whereby I suppose I'm lucky at this stage in that you know my my biggest influences were music of the 70s and you know that that music is still a lot of the time what I listen to so therefore those tunes are prime for for recording again now and then I also have um, as Dom kind of referenced there people and associations with tunes from having heard them grown up or field recordings or just memories of 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 people playing tunes and I would imagine that that is the most important element is that association you know I can really just sit down and vividly remember people playing a tune and maybe I'm over uh, I suppose imagining it maybe but I I think I can hear still the variations in the versions that they played you know Um, or certain key elements anyway Uh, and then I can kind of build it together or piece the you know piece the parts together Uh, and sometimes to forget a little bit is good because then you do automatically come up with your own little stamp on it you know um but there's just so many great old tunes there you know um and and it's just lovely to get the opportunity to rework them listening to a tune or remembering a tune with that kind of accuracy you're not the first one to mention it but to me that it's 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 more akin to a superpower than than just something people could do is that something that you found you naturally did kind of growing up and learning music or something that you you had to work on because I can't remember those things I can barely remember the melody the next day um I think I'm I'm a little bit lucky in that regard but I'm also very good with names and with faces um uh and I think it's maybe a little characteristic that I have in that there's a certain part of my brain that remembers a lot of detail and then there's a bigger part that remembers nothing at all but um you know tunes names faces things like that are well they're getting slightly less vivid but you know down through the years they they have they haven't let me down um 
and I'm happy that I have memory for for that and not for you know maths or or, or literature even or, or poetry or stuff like that you know it's, it's the stuff that I I generally kind of need and have made the most of throughout my my life so um is that an emotional experience for you um I I, I would hope so yeah I think there, that's what the trigger is is it, it and and I think possibly what makes it more ingrained in your memory is that there's an emotional trigger I just have a very strong belief that the people that played the music and passed on the tunes and and I'm talking still even about significant recordings it doesn't didn't have to be like in 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 the flesh but you know I just I just listened to such a great uh level or, or an intense level that yeah there was a there was an emotion uh, definitely that uh kind of was associated with with the listening experience or even that experience when I've been in front of a musician and, and watched and been in awe of what they were doing. You know, there's there's a lot of that yeah. stuff that, that registers, yeah. Uh, and and, and, is, and is not to... Longford- sorry, uh, just not to go off on the kind of old man, uh, you know, people don't seem to do that anymore, but I, I do find um, <laughs> that possibly... Uh, there isn't as much value in the the kind of handing down or the 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 sitting in front of a musician and hearing the story behind the tune and 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 really kind of savoring just the 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 journey if you like of that tune from the generation before the person that I'm listening to and then they've passing it on to me or i i do i do value that yeah, hopefully we're in the like if it's a if it's a a curve which w- would be people looking back and trying to learn tunes in from the source. Yeah. Uh, what, what actually what I'm trying to say is it, hopefully we're kind of at that bot the bottom part of the curve where people will start realizing and going back to that. Like it seems to have happened. It has previously happened. where yeah. the music has dropped completely away and pe- and the same thing. It was it was called like the old man. Uh-huh. thing that you were just saying where the young people are not doing it the same they've no interest in the old and then there was a resurgence and maybe we're just in that trough yeah and, and I'm, I'm I mean I'm definitely generalizing I mean there's 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 always going to be the um the passionate and and uh those the, the few people that are just they want to get right back to the source all the time you know the fanatics if you want to call them that too I mean I I am one of those are you know, I, that's how I became so, I think, enamored with it was I, I kind of fell and I fell hard for it. <laughs> but isn't that the exact reason why the young people don't want to do it that way anyway? So we just have to grin and bear it. Like the the the, the very things that your the generation ahead of you, your dad did to be good at what he did, you're going to rebel against it. You're going to like, that's yeah. just science, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, you have to, it's written in law. No, and, and so maybe it's the generation next. It's hard for me to 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 kind of come across as if I'm making any sense because, you know, the 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 standard of music that's been played by the younger musicians today is superior to what like I was able to play and and what a lot of my um, contemporaries were playing. You know, they, they're just the skill factor is is enormous and and frightening. But uh, 
you know, is 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 that enough? I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a bigger, <laughs> bigger question. Um, well, it is hard to it's hard to quantify the difference, right? Um, I mean, I'm I naturally gravitate towards entirely towards the stories behind the tunes, and for me, uh, as you know yourself, it's um, uh, tunes. Uh, they're obviously. Um, beautiful sort of articulations of of life in themselves but but the they do have this for me this direct road back to the people i learned it from or the people i used to play with or the shitty flat i used to live in in scotland yeah, yeah. you know where i used to get an electric shock every time i took a shower <laughs> the, you know what i mean it's like it's that it's it's that direct and it's that strong, right? It's no, so and, I totally and, get where you're coming from. Yeah, and it becomes part of your life story. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think there. I mean, those two tunes that I started off with, yeah, the the old Johns, even the jig itself, I'd known it forever. Um, it's a, it's a tune. That, so where'd you get that from? Well, I mean, the version that I have going around in my head is is actually one from Tony McMahon, the the accordion player. Um, but it's a tune that the Chieftains recorded it back in the day. Um, I mean, the the old John, gosh, we could really get nerdy. The old John that's referenced in the tune there. Um, Go for it. <laughs> is, is John Potts. Um, John Potts from Wexford. And he, he would have been the father of Tommy Potts, the incredible fiddle player. Tommy. Yeah. yeah. And he would have been the grandfather of Sean Potts, who played the tin whistle with the Chieftains. Um, and then subsequently, you know, the Chieftains recorded it and various musicians like Tony McMahon recorded it. And um, so that's that's what I kind of hear and picture when I'm playing it are are kind of the musicians from that period. Um, so could we have another tune and then we'll talk more about those uh, musicians that um, really influenced you? Um, I, I, it's funny you mentioned as well the Bothy band. I just realised that. Um, do you, do you, is um, the Longford Tinker on that album that you've got hanging on your wall? The cover that you've got hanging on the wall. <laughs> it actually isn't on that album. No, no, it's not an album. Okay, it's not on that. Uh, no. I just noticed that the other day. Wow, geez, it's very good. Um, How do you know what's got, what's on Kevin's wall? Are you I see. Tea, <laughs> he hasn't been telling hey, you very everything. Close attention. So I he hasn't. That's it. We need to have a chat. <laughs> the albums on my wall, I mean, they do tell a story. Um, but I, I I have two Bothy Band albums among the eight album covers I have on my wall, which kind of tells you how important a part they play uh, in in my kind of love of the music. But um, yeah, that mar- the set that I stole the Longford Tinker from was from their very first album, the 1975 classic, um, and it was part of the Martin Wins set of tunes. Um, so there you go. Um, yeah, what would I play? <laughs> before we get into the tune, before and before we move away from the albums on the wall, mm-hmm. how long, How what kind of process do you have to go through to pick eight records to commit to? Or do you change them out? Are you a bit of a cheater? Uh, no, no, well, I've changed two out just because I I actually didn't have uh, the vinyl copies of two that I really wanted when I was making up the configuration of eight. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to name names. What's on there at the minute? Um, I've got Joe Cooley's album. I'll go with the the hardcore trad ones first. So 
Yeah, Joe Cooley, um, you're familiar with the, the name associated with the real. He was an accordion player from mm-hmm. from Galway, from Gort, just outside Clare, which is very strongly connected with, with me. Um, and he moved to America and he recorded uh, a, a, some music there. Um, but the rhythm in his playing was something I always really loved. And it was a, a bit dirty. Like, you know, he wasn't... I like that he wasn't like really super polished um even though he was an incredibly sophisticated player there's an edge to it and there's a an element of of devilment you know and i like that in music um then i have uh Seamus Ennis on the pipes of a solo album of his there and i just again always loved his music but i i always i liked his singing too and i liked his stories it was a lot to do with the man, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I leap straight forward to the the albums that I keep, keep, keep listening to. Like, uh, so you've got the Bothy Bands albums. I've got the uh, Out of the Wind, Into the Sun and the old Hag You've Killed Me. Then I have Planksty's at the Well Below the Valley album because I, I, I'm a massive Planksty fan too, but I really loved Johnny Moynihan when he was with the band mm-hmm. uh, I loved his singing and um, then I have Dedanon Dedanon were the other big group for me so Bathyburn, Planksty and Dedanon they're, they're kind of three parts of the, the important kind of triangle uh, definitely all, all three of those bands just influenced me massively uh, and then the last two albums uh, are Matt Malloy and Tommy Peoples with Paul Brady and Paddy Keenan's Yes, I know that album. Oh, that is <laughs> that is that is a classic, isn't it? Oh, it's you know what? It's um <clears throat> I I I uh I got that album in Jerry Donnelly's electricity shop in Ballycastle, right? So as you'd appreciate, like so I was in the in the early eighties, so there wasn't a lot I mean you you just didn't see stuff around very much. Um where I was growing up. Albums, you know, it was all like Kajagoo and stuff like that. So <laughs> To stumble across that, yeah, and I and I bought it and I took it home and honestly, straight off, having listened to a lot of Planksty and things, straight off, I found it really a hard listen because it's quite spare, yeah, you know, yeah, um, but it's uh, but it's the, it's the real McCoy. No, like, it's as raw as you can almost get, like, um, and it's fiery. Um, it was the first, I suppose, album that I got that reminded me of a really great session. You know, it was, it is, as you say, it's, it's very different to the Planksties and the, like, it's not as, um, it's not as produced, even though it's, it is produced, obviously, but it, it is raw. And it's, it's, it's all about just, just pumping out the tunes um, and pumping them out, like, with incredible kind of finesse. But uh, no, it's great. And, and the funny thing about that, even if you didn't like the music, it's worthy of a place on the wall because the artwork is 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 beautiful. Um, it's a it's a kind of a painting of the of the, the three boys in full flight. Aye. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then the last one is a Paddy Keenan solo album, Porton Pibra, the the one with Artie McGlynn, which I I adore. You know, Artie McGlynn was such a a huge figure and and a great influence, and and I, you know, I I was lucky to. To know him and record with him and yeah he's sadly missed mm-hmm. yep well 
shall we have um, <laughs> that long delayed second set? Okay, <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, Thank you for that. That's great. Really. Uh, what What do you got in your kitchen? I know. I was just. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Phew. Um, Give us a tour of the fridge. I'll, I will. Well, that that would be far less interesting than the than the CD and then the album covers. Let's say. Um, so I'll try another a double bubble set of tunes here. Um, the first tune is called "The City of Savannah," and it's it's become a standard hornpipe as such in 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 the Irish tradition. But it's it's a it's actually a, a kind of an an American tune from Civil War times, um, and then it got kind of adopted by the Irish and became a kind of a vaudeville stage Irish dance hall type tune. Um, and then I, I came about or came to it via Matt Malloy's Stony Steps album. He recorded it. Uh, and again, the old statutory whatever amount of years passed and I thought I might be able to do something with it. But uh, typical, I'm giving away all my tricks. I, I changed it from the key that Matt recorded it in, which is a D, and I put it into C. And then I, I go into a reel after that, um, just a single, simple, single reel called James Hanley's. So here I go. Thank you. 
Um, so Kevin, um, we were chatting uh, before we came on air about about your flutes. So, um, what did, what is that instrument that you're playing at the minute? So yeah, the the first uh, couple of sets and that one I just played there featured a D flute made by Australian man Michael Grinter, um, and and I, a lot of the instruments I play are Mike's instruments. You know, I, I kind of just fell in love with them in the late 90s when I was in Australia and Mike was kind of just starting to get a foothold in the the Irish music world at that point and we struck up a friendship and and I would have had one of his earlier instruments I suppose really Uh, and that's the D flute that I'm that I played there is the instrument I got from him then Mm -hmm. uh, back in did you did, 98 did you seek him out when you came over no 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 i mean it's a it's a great story in some ways so uh i had been playing a flute made by another great maker chris wilkes and chris is from just outside birmingham in the in the midlands of england which is where i'm originally from and myself and chris wilkes used to busk together he played the pipes and he decided he'd got, he'd done engineering in college and he thought, oh, I'm going to try making flutes. So I ended up kind of moving in with him for best part of two years. And, and I became his kind of tester, if you like. He, he would make a prototype and I'd try it and I'd suggest things. And I was only like 17 or something like that. I didn't really know what was needed, but I knew what I liked. Um, so we just kept working and, and eventually Wilkes came up with this this model um and it I, I i had one of those and lots of people fell in love with that flute then after that so many of the great players started playing wilkes instruments um and then i was playing that up until the time i went to australia in 97 with lunasa lunasa's first tour actually ever and i was playing in port ferry and this guy came up to me after the the first set and introduced himself to me and he said oh he says we met before I said really and he says yeah I met you in Milltown Malbay at the Willie Clancy week he says many years ago he says you didn't even have a flute at the time um so I'm I'm guessing it was 1985 because I I went from England to to Clare for the Willie Clancy week in 1983 and 1985 and I Fifteen and seventeen at the time, and I didn't own a flute um, then. And Mike said to me he had made a flute, which was the one he had with him, and he was. I I borrowed it during the Willie Clancy week of nineteen eighty five. So anyway, fast forward to nineteen ninety seven. Mike comes up. He says, "Oh, we actually met before at the Willie Clancy week," and he said, "You um, you borrowed my flute, and you said you liked it." And all I'm thinking is, oh, but I, I would have said that to anybody. It didn't, <laughs> you know, just just to get just to get my hands on a flute, I'd have told them, you know, the leg of a table was beautiful, anything. Um, but I felt I kind of owed it to him. To he said he had a a bit of a stall uh, kind of set out at the festival, and he asked would I go down and try a couple of his instruments. And I I really did think this was just going to be me going down to to kind of pay back. The good favor or the good thing, the good deed he'd done to me back in 1985. Yeah. But I went down and and tried 
a couple of the flutes and I genuinely was just, oh my God, these are incredible instruments. And I don't know what it was because I loved my Wilkes, but there were just certain things that just weren't making it easy for me to totally kind of express myself on them. You know what I mean? Um, and the Grinter one seemed to let me do things that I have wanted to do like a simple little articulation things or little details that would come out when I played it so you know I was pleasantly what, surprised what like, what like Kevin so can you can you give us can you give us an example of your well, of your flute to your hand there yeah I mean it, it, it's it's the same possibly for for every flute player and then their association with their instrument um like with the flute you create the sound by blowing into the into the embouchure and the way that that embouchure kind of relates to your mouth or your the shape of your mouth or the way that you blow into the flute is everything you know it's it kind of it's what makes your voice if you like through the instrument mm -hmm. um and the way that mike i mean the whole instrument had to be great but in in particular the way he cut his embouchures it just it gave you that extra little uh, the opportunity to get more information or, or a little bit more detail out of it, you know. Um, so that was the thing. I just instantly felt like there was a, a connection. And that doesn't happen usually with an instrument. You need to take it and familiarise yourself with it. But, um, you know, I really did like what, what Mike had. And, and across the three or four instruments that he had that day, it was uh, it was there. It was a common thread through all of them is that, you know, the the it was easy to to connect yeah uh, so how did things how did things progress from there <laughs> so I, I basically said to him i mean i was quite honest uh in that i said i have a great flute and i'd i'd recorded my solo album and i'd done a bunch of recordings on these wilkes flutes that i had um so i i was loyal to the flute and i was loyal to chris because you know we'd kind of designed them between us um so I, I said to mike like if you can make me a flute that has all that my wilkes has and yet allows me to do the things that i'm kind of doing with your instrument here today i'll order one and i'll, I'll buy one and port ferry as you know that's january and he arrived in ennison county clare in july of 97 with the instrument and i have i have never played my wilkes flute since wow. uh, and you know we that was the start then of this amazing friendship uh like that was mm -hmm. that was the start mike came and, and he stayed with with me in ennis um and we went around to all the sessions and I introduced him to lots of people. And like Mike, everybody loves just Mike's Grinter, like Mike Grinter. Like he just had this amazing, likable nature. And he's kind of second home almost became Ennis. Mm -hmm. What was he like? I mean, he, he was a... He was a perfectionist, um, there's no doubt about it. Like he had a, an incredible standard um, and would beat himself up constantly. And, you know, he just wanted 
every player to be happy um, and he wanted every instrument to be better than the next. Uh, and that, you know, that's a that's a dangerous kind of standard to set yourself. Um, um, but, you know, he, he never he never brought that into his kind of a, his social um, kind of world or uh, social activities. You know, he was just mm. so he was great company and great fun and he loved people, you know, and, and he really did enjoy the crack like he and he got that he really got it, you know, and, you know, he'd always be full of great intentions. Oh, Kev, I'm not going to drink tonight. You know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to take care. Of <laughs> and, you know, you'd call him the following day would say, you know, I might have an arrangement to maybe go around and try a couple. Ah, oh, I got caught with John Kelly and Siobhan. Oh, my God, I'm dying. <laughs> and like, it was just so, it used to be hilarious, this common thing. And so if I have a great name, a great memory for names and for play, Mike, Mike's memory for names, musicians or tunes, or was terrible. It was awful. So I'd <sighs> I'd say, who were you hanging with last night? My, oh, I don't remember. They got uh, and like, this this big long <laughs> investigation would would kind of. I think I think her name was and then maybe after an hour, her name was nothing like the name he'd remembered. Like it was <laughs> used to be hilarious. Um, but he just loved hanging out and was you know a great great. It, and then the more of his instruments that uh, started to kind of float around the scene, the bigger kind of list of, of contacts he had and, and the, the bigger, the larger the circle of people he would visit. And, uh, you know, he always called on anybody that had an instrument of his and he'd take care of it. And, you know, he was way too conscientious. I mean, people got a, a lifetime kind of warranty with the flutes that nobody gives. <laughs> he would, you know, he'd always check out, check up on them. Let's, I just had read a story about, I forget who the person was. They said they had, they played one of his flutes and then they ordered one and they loved it. And they sent him a message after they were out in a session one night and they loved their flute so much. They decided they'd give him a ring. So they rang Australia just to say how much, how enamored they were with the flute. And then a year or two later, when Michael was in Ireland, he visited and ended up staying with this guy and and having tunes with him and becoming lifelong friends. You don't, not many instrument makers would uh, mm. would would do that. No, and that's that's a typical thing. And and, that, and not to cut across, but he did have this. Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of instrument makers kind of locked themselves away, um, and you know they're kind of just doing their thing and, and inventing and creating and but Mike had this um he did that but he knew the value then of like shaking off the shackles and and going and and he knew that mixing with people was was a, as much a part of of the whole uh passing on of an instrument as as it was just selling it and saying okay that's that done it was never done you know mm -hmm. Was that sort of perfectionist element of his personality? Um, I mean, I sort of, I don't know if I'm just picking this up wrong, but like, was that, was that a, a difficult thing for him to handle? Well, I think it was in every element of his life, to be honest. I mean, anything he did, he had to be the best at. Uh, and I don't, I, I, again, I, I mean that in the best possible way, but like, you know, anything, anything he did, if he was, uh, 
you know, doing work on the house, if he was, you know, when he was cycling um, and, and it was just terrible then that it was actually on the bike where he was ultimately killed because, you know, he was such a such a professional in, in everything he did. So, uh, yeah, um, I think it. I think he learned in later life funny to not be as harsh on himself or hard on himself. Um, and he did become a lot more chilled out like in, 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 in the, in the last few years I, I, I knew him. He, he was definitely, he made more time for, for himself and for, you know, kind of traveling and being sociable and, uh, yeah, so that was that was good and it was healthy for him you know because jesus he would he would definitely be hard on himself <laughs> the sunday before he was he was tragically killed i was here in brooklyn and i discovered like i say one of the springs on the flute i might have needed to adjust the action and i i, th I felt it might have been leaking sometimes that happens when a flute gets shipped it can get kind of slightly knocked about in the the mail or whatever um so sometimes you just need to readjust them so i had a little bit of a leak and the flute and so he was teaching me over skype how to check for leaks you know and uh there was this funny how do you check for leaks well there's there's a bunch of ways you try and cover up the the open holes with your fingers and then you kind of push the instrument down on your your thigh to seal the bottom of it and then you blow or suck into the other part of the flute and if you create a vacuum then the flute isn't leaking and if if it feels like there's air escaping then you kind of go through the different keys to maybe figure out which one is leaking but none of this was working you don't wash washing up liquid all over it you know, <laughs> bubbles. blow bubbles but it, we figured out that maybe <laughs> the leak might actually be not in the body of the fluid it might be in the head so that's a harder thing to figure out the leak on so he says oh you gotta get a plastic bag and put it over the the uh, the head and you gotta tape it on and then blow into it and if the bag inflates you know it's not leaking so anyway I said, Jesus, I can't find a bag anywhere in the apartment. No, can't find a bag anywhere. No. So he's like, oh, how are you going to do it? Because there's no plastic bags in New York anymore, is <laughs> no. there? <laughs> no. So anyway, this is probably the bit you can't put into the podcast, but I'll say it. So anyway, I said, do you know what might work? I, there's, I've got a condom here in the house. <laughs> so he says, you can't put. So anyway, I ended up putting this thing over the head of the flute. <laughs> and taping it up and blown into the flute and sure enough the condom inflated you see so he's he's in in australia right. and he's laughing he's rolling around the workshop like he's saying oh, i can't wait to tell everybody crawford put a condom on the end of it <laughs> so that was on the sunday morning and we've had this huge laugh like and and uh and then on the the wednesday I, I'm I'm on tour and I'm in Kansas City and I see a call coming in through Facebook Messenger from from Mike's son, Pip. And I just assumed that it was Mike calling me through Pip's Facebook, you know, and that we were just gonna have another laugh about the the condom incident, you know. Um and so I answered the the call and no, it wasn't Mike, it was Pip and and, and Pip broke the news to me that like a couple of hours earlier Mike had um, had been killed off the bike you know 
and it was just I just could not believe it it was so so shocking like to think that I'd I'd kind of had this uh this conversation this great little laugh with Mike Honey a couple of days before that um so it did it it was weird that we had had that time so close to the, his passing is what I'm trying to get at because there were periods where we could have gone 18 months as I say without talking but um, it was just all the more devastating because I, I, I just had his laugh ringing around in my head like it was and and he had an infectious laugh you know he was, he was great uh, and he's you know his instruments he has left enough of a legacy there and his workmanship will never be surpassed you know there's there's other great makers making flutes um but mike had you know he kind of held his own in that regard um but i think what will really kind of keep the mike grinter name alive is his association with the people that he met in Ireland or the people his friends in Australia, the music, the musical circle, you know, um, because he was a character. And we're going back to write what we said at the beginning, you know, those associations with tunes or instruments and the characters. That's what that's what we remember, really. You know. Was it hard to go out and perform? I mean, I guess it must have been, right? You're, you're on tour. No, you're... actually, no, no. The very the very opposite. Uh, no, it was like, okay, now it's it's like uh, I'm going to keep Mike's name alive by playing the instrument. And I, I, you know, for a long time, not a long time, but for a certain time, I did uh, just acknowledge that I was playing a Grinter instrument, you know, when, when, when I'd step up either to to play my solo at the gig or you know just things like that and and it helped enormously almost channeling that at a gig um mm -hmm. and those things help well, kevin should we have a should we have a couple of tunes yeah i might go to a whistle then here i, I play like the first two sets there were on mike's d flute i'm gonna play a tune on on one of Mike's whistles, uh, I'm going to play a slow air. I think it would be nice to play a slow air, actually, given what we've been talking about there. Um, on Buchleen Bon, The Dear Irish Boy. And it's the melody of a song. My father didn't play music, uh, but he sang songs. And I would pick up tunes from him. Just he would sing and I'd try and forge out the notes and and when i was a kid and and this is uh one of the tunes i associate with dad singing um and then i'll trans ah actually do you know what i'm gonna do this is a big australian connection here um the next two tunes uh, i'll go into after the air were tunes i picked up from edo and ben uh oh. so Edo Barker and Ben Stevenson. Yeah. Um, so they recorded the two tunes, the two jigs I play after the uh, the air on one of the Trouble in the Kitchen albums. But I had heard one of the tunes on a kind of a recording they did featuring uh, archival stuff. They did this kind of research kind of recording one time. Aye. Um, and, and For I, the National, National Library. Yeah. 
and I fell in love with this recording of um, Sally Sloan. Yeah, she had a, a huge body of songs and tunes. Um, and the lads, are, I, I think P, uh, John Meredith was the original collector of, of the Sally Sloan stuff uh, back in the 1950s. But the guys, uh, Ado and Ben, unearthed it again through the through the library, uh, National Library in Australia. And uh, actually, funny, I I have a thing of Sally Sloan here. Uh, if you can. Like that's incredible, like, um, and uh, unbelievable, and 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 so you know I have that version, and then I subsequently heard the boys record it with uh, another jig uh, called "The Hole in the Boat," um, but I fell in love with the tune via that that recording. I mean, isn't that just unbelievable? It's like a, it's just I don't know. It's this childlike voice coming from this this lovely lady in Australia, you know, um, I think she, she lived in parks, New South Wales. Is that, does that, is that a place you're familiar with? <laughs> it, it isn't. No, to be honest. Um, <laughs> um but, but I've only, yeah. it's beautiful. So anyway, I, I'll go into the, to the hole in the boat and Sally Sloan's, as I call it, after the, uh, the dear Irish boy.
I'm so happy you end up playing the Dear Irish Boy. Um, it, it's actually, I was just listening to, or oh, watching on YouTube, there's a clip of you with the teetotalers. Yeah. Um, and you, you're playing that, and I was thinking, geez, if there was... Was it, if it was a tune, if you said, what, what, what would you want? I think I'd have to put my hand up for that. Good. Well, I, I'm glad I did it. What's the, um, are you still, what's, what's the current um, situation with the teetotalers? Is that just that it was a more of a one-off-y or a, a time frame thing or more things might happen? Oh, there's so much talk about more things happening. Um, but like, gosh, I mean, is anything going to happen <laughs> again uh, yeah. at, at the moment? Um, it's not just the teetotalers that is is on hold, um, but we we came about by a, a kind of a lovely way of 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 being. Like um, John Doyle was performing at a festival in California with um, Karen Casey. Martin Hayes was at the same festival with Dennis Cal. And I was there with Lunasa and this, um, the uh, director of the festival, this really out there Californian hippie guy, Cloud Moss. Cloud, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a name, if ever, a, a perfect Californian name, Cloud Moss. Um, Love it. And, and Cloud had this thing where he used to just bundle people together to do a set um and he just he just call it the evening before and he'd say right you guys are going to do a set tomorrow so he told us on the friday night he says yeah he says i want you guys to play on the saturday afternoon you and john and and martin you know and i said oh geez i mean i'd known martin and martin had uh, had recorded with me on on my in good company album but like we didn't have any mm -hmm. tunes really together. We had no nothing that was going to fill an hour. And I, I'd never played with John Doyle. Um, so we, we just sat down and, and put a kind of a, a thing together. Um, picked a couple of tunes of Martin's and picked a couple of tunes of mine. And they, you know, we a couple of session tunes. And we got up and we played them. But there was, there was a great energy. Like there was this uh there was just a really brilliant energy that came and all three of us would be drivers if you like um you know mm -hmm. no, none of us would be would be happy in the in the passenger role so <laughs> it was it was like it was pure like power you know and 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 we just we were trying to almost outdo each other i'd imagine but not in a and <laughs> not in a in a in a, in a deliberate yeah. interest in the music like if they if martin threw something at me i'd throw something back and then john is just like the best responder ever like well you know if you're having fun i'm coming to the party too so this went on and when when cloud i could see i could but when cloud got up to introduce us um he he monikered the name the teetotalers because uh all three of us at that time were teetotal um so the name was there and we did the gig and we enjoyed it so much that we said we might maybe revisit it um and we met at another festival maybe a year later and we we said okay let's put some proper tunes together for this and we did uh 
and then we decided, okay, let's do a tour. And, and that's what happened in 2013. We did a tour. Um, and then we did a couple of American tours after that. Um, and we tried to record an album and we failed. Um, and we just kept saying, okay, we'll, we'll do it next year. But then the gloaming took off and then Lunasa was doing stuff. And then John was very busy with all of his work and we just never got around to it. So, um, we meet annually at a festival, a teaching event down in North Carolina, the Swannanoa gathering. Um, and all three of us are, are part of the faculty there each year and we get to do a set together and, you know, it's just become, okay, after the gig, we always say, right, when are we going to make this happen? And another year goes and we, and we don't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely no reason why it shouldn't happen other than people's kind of uh, work schedule, to be honest. Mm. There is a funny, there's a, f a funny thing when you describe the energy uh, between you all. There's, I could see, so you are all sitting down, and um, I can see you, and you're you're moving around, and the legs going out. You know, <laughs> you you shit the leg a couple of times. You're like, what? It's just, it's yeah, cracking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It's a thing. I, now that I I I know that gig you're referring to, it allowed me to throw my leg out and it allowed me to move around because it was an acoustic gig so uh, I didn't have to you know I wasn't in a straitjacket in front of a microphone um, and I, I do like that and Martin Hayes like I mean Martin just goes all over the hair is gone and the fiddle's gone and the bow's <laughs> gone and and John is is the same I mean gosh like he's all moves um, and yeah. you know if I'm not restricted by a microphone I'm I'm the same um you know we can't contain ourselves so that that is that is part of it uh now there is a live gig that we recorded actually in Ennis and we we have that always in our back pocket and um, we talk about that if we don't get into the studio we are going to let this thing out because it's it's great you know but we we were hoping that we might have a a better kind of studio version in us at least that we could compare the two um but it just didn't work for us when we went in to record you know we and and it's it i suppose it, it's worth mentioning in something like this um that energy that i said that we that we had and that we have when we play that wasn't there when we went into the studio and it's a very hard thing. Does that happen often? I, yeah, I think if that's the type of music you're trying to capture, then yes, it, it's very hard to to go there in the studio. Um, so you can come up with a, and we did come up with a bunch of tracks, and in some ways they're they're perfect, but in other ways they're actually completely not what we're about. You know, like um, you've got no mistakes, and there's the audio is better than probably the the live gig and everyone gets a chance to kind of give the thumbs up to their own performance but the blend and 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 the energy wasn't what we were used to hearing back from the three of us and we we made the right decision i think in in just saying nah let's let's leave it and so we only recorded maybe five or six tracks and we never went back to finish and 
uh, those tracks will never see the light of day. I hope. <laughs> it's actually just speaking of um, recordings. I said it's a nice little segue from the initial one you played to then talking about the the, the uh, recordings you did with the teetotalers. Um, you're on a on a like oh, I was going to call it a mixtape, but it's a, it's a session tape from years ago. The, I think like the Gort sessions. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? Oh, so, does that it, ring a bell? It's funny, like myself and. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Well, I don't really know because it's. I'm I have a bit of a fascination with just the idea of the the amount of these tapes that exist out there in the in the universe of great sessions. So, that, that, can you tell me about the Gord session? Yeah, um, I'll start with the by letting you know that, like, if I if I could play how I played on that Gord tape. Every day of the week, I would be the happiest man on the planet, and and it's got nothing to do with, with it's a very straight ahead, um, unflashy, um, you know, no tricks. It's it's just the real deal, and the the reason it is that way has everything to do with the musicians I'm playing with, and I. I was just kind of listening and responding to what they were doing. Uh, and that group of musicians that... Can you set the scene for us? Yeah. So the, there's a festival held in Gart, which is just outside Ennis. And, you know, as you venture into Galway, um, actually, again, it's where Joe Cooley came from. And this festival that used to happen was the Cooley Collins Festival. It was a, a festival in honour of Joe Cooley and Kieran Collins, two great musicians from Gart. So I hadn't long moved over from from England to Ireland. Uh, I moved over in 1989. Um, I was 19 years of age. I moved to to Ennis um, and I'm, I'm hanging out in Ennis and I get to play with all of these musicians who I'd grown up listening to, Noel Hill, Tony Linan. Uh, so Tony Linan was living in Ennis. I got to play with him a lot. Tommy Peoples is in Clare. I'm playing with Tommy every week. And like, I am I think I've died and gone to heaven, you know. Um, and uh, this festival comes around in, so I moved in 1989, 1991. Uh, the, Cooley, the Cooley Festival is happening. And I get a call from Tony Linan to say that he's thinking of heading up to Gart. Would I like to go? I said, yeah, great. Um, I wasn't driving at the time, didn't have a car. So Tony picked me up. We head to Gart and we head into this little tiny old style. You know, remember the old bars? Like there was the like a, almost a shop and a bar in one. And you just step down a couple of steps into this this little room and it was Kelly's bar and you had Connor Tully on the fiddle Tony Lennon then was playing fiddle um Parik McDonagh was the banjo player the most incredible rhythmical tuneful banjo player you're ever going to encounter uh this really great character Frank McGann who played the Bowron um but he only joined us later in in the proceedings um, but for the most part, it was Connor Tully, Tony Lennon and Parik McDonagh kind of coming up with the tunes, setting the pace, this rhythm, this rhythm, like 
and it's so, so important for a flute player to tug out with somebody that has a solid pulse and a solid rhythm um, because then you can breathe it's like when you go for a run if you have a solid if you have a good uh, kind of way of breathing you can run forever like if you're struggling and you're kind of finding it hard to find that rhythm you can only go to the end of the block and then you're wrecked so you know playing with musicians like Tony and Connor and Park, it was like super easy um, and none of us had any idea the thing was being recorded um, and we just played these tunes and um then you know the following day almost this recording was revealed and and people started to share it and um you know i'm just so grateful to have it it's it is something that i think a bit like the teetotalers live gig if ever i had permission from tony and connor and parik um it's something i'd love to to release not not dress it up or do anything but just as it is like completely raw a bit like say live at matt malloy's or the live recording from pepper's yeah. bar and because there's an atmosphere there's something about that yeah I, I remember i was talking to dom about this a couple of weeks ago because um different recordings come to us every now and again and it, it just it reminds me of on o'connell bridge and on the halfpenny bridge used to be there was two lads and they used to sell bootleg tapes. Mm -hmm. Now I know that wasn't the most legal thing in the world, but I've still got, like I, I saw Bowie in the Olympia in 97 and I've got the tape for that still. And you can't like, there's no live show that whatever, no. there's no live recording or like HMV or whatever. You just, the, the rawness adds to it. It's part of why it is so amazing. Well, it's, it's a, it's a, a group of musicians, again, totally uh, comfortable in their environment. You know, we're in a bar with friends playing tunes, totally unaware it's been recorded. And, um, you know, it, it was it was captured, which is which is the lovely part. Uh, I mean, I I have recordings like you mentioned there, things again that I either recorded myself from from sessions that are still my prized possessions. And I learned more from them than I did from musicians that are taking part in those recordings who recorded great albums, but I still go back to the the kind of session stuff sometimes, you know, and, and there's just an extra kind of a thing to be kind of mined from it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, can, I, can I ask you then, but, how old were you when that, when that session was recorded? I would have been 21. Right. So how long had you been, uh, had your own flute then? uh i i gosh there's the question so i was working with i was probably 18 17 or 18 when i got the the wilkes L yeah aye, yeah aye. so what were you I, I don't want to get off the session thing but i just wonder like what were you playing before the before you got that flute i mean anything i could beg steal or borrow basically um so right. yeah this is a completely uh in terms of um chronological order we're doing things funny way around which is how i do everything so it's perfect in some ways but um i fell in love with the sound of the fiddle and flute um it was the earliest memory i have of irish music was fiddle and flute my parents didn't play but they had recordings of clare music in the house that they played constantly uh the tulloch band the kilfenora Cayley band um 
there was a recording of P. Joe Hayes and, and Paddy Canny uh, and Peter O'Loughlin on the flute uh, with Bridie Lafferty playing piano. And that was the album I, I kind of fell in love with. So fiddle and flute was a sound I just always loved. Um, and then my mom would bring myself and the the next closest brother to me in age to Ireland every summer. And we'd hang out in my mom's home place, uh, the farm, and we'd do what young kids do there and hang out in the farm and have great fun and, and mess around with cousins and all that. Um, but completely fortuitous and, and by a, a stroke of luck, um, you know, the neighbours around where my mom was from were Junior Crehan and Josie Hayes and uh, you know, Willie Clancy's and all of those musicians. I, I didn't know Willie Clancy, but they're all from that area. So I was listening to Junior Crehan, Josie Hayes, um, you know, Pat Kelly, all these, these musicians, Bobby Casey, um, when I would go to Ireland during the summer. Um, so my mom knew I was interested in the music. Um, she spoke to Junior Crehan and through a friend, they got me a fiddle. And I took the fiddle back to England and I set about trying to make music on it and I failed miserably. Um, I just couldn't get anything out of it, only like just a bag of cats, like terrible. Um, and I just started to think, oh my God, like I love the music, but I'll never play. But then an uncle of mine on my mom's side visited us in Birmingham and he played the tin whistle and he left a tin whistle in the house after he came to visit and I just started to tootle around on this thing and it was like it was always part of me I was able to make sense of it and never went to lessons uh, and I used to just tease out tunes and then as I say my dad had come home from work and he'd sing a song and I'd try to find the notes and 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 I just progressed from there and then a teacher at my primary school in Birmingham he played tin whistle and he just showed me the scale uh, and gave me a couple of pointers and that set me on the path so uh, you know at least I was able to play the whistle and but my my hunt was still on for a flute but we couldn't afford a flute um, and then fast forward a couple of years and my uncle a different uncle but the same on my mom's side who was a missionary priest in Africa was home from Africa and he'd heard that I was into the music and he went and visited a friend of his who we went to school with who was making flutes and he convinced him to give me a flute. Now, it was an F flute, so I couldn't play with anybody, but it gave me the opportunity to blow into it and get used to kind of playing a flute. Uh, and that's what I practiced on day in, day out. Uh, and then in Birmingham, I came across who was to be outside of Matt Malai, my greatest influence, this musician called Patsy Maloney, a remarkable flute player. I was so lucky that he was the player that I was able to access on my doorstep. Um, and, you know... There's so many in Birmingham. What, what is, what's the flute and Birmingham connection? Well, the, the, there weren't that many. I mean, okay, there were, but they they came at different times. So you're you're probably referring to like Frank Jordan and Catherine McAvoy and all these great players that came from Birmingham. But I, I didn't know any of those because 
Catherine had left Birmingham by the time I started playing. Um, I knew of her. I knew the name. And I knew like the Frank Jordan connection. But Patsy Maloney was really the only flute player in Birmingham when I was starting to come onto the scene. And, and I was really, really lucky that it was him because there could not have been a better role model. Like this guy, he's, he's like the Rolls Royce of flute player. He's like so silky smooth and he's, his roles are so polished. And, you know, if, if I'd had access to a sloppy player, I wouldn't have known any different and I would have still loved it. But would that have kind of pushed me to be probably a bit better at what I was doing? No, I had I had two references. I had Matt Malloy's recordings and I had Patsy Maloney to look at. Like, I mean, it was it was great. Um, so um, anyway, Patsy might go to the bar to get a drink or if he went to the bathroom uh, and I would pick up his flute and I'd play it maybe for 20 minutes at, at a session uh, and that's where I met Chris Wilkes and then that was the story then of, of me getting a flute made um, for myself um, yeah I'm, I'm, I, it would be so wrong of me not to mention how important Birmingham is in it all but in the the history of Irish music in England Birmingham doesn't get a great shout um, London it's well documented the amount of musicians that were there and the amount of incredible music that was there. And I traveled to London myself in search of great music. Uh, Manchester, you know, we could talk for days about the great music in Manchester. And, and even to this day, the like all of the amazing musicians, the Peter Carveries, the Michael McGoldricks, the Desi Donnellys, the like the, the Colin Farrells, the, like there's a stream of them. But you would be hard pushed to mention like five great musicians that came out of the Birmingham scene but they they were there for some reason it's just they didn't really go on to pursue it um there was an amazing scene there from 19 kind of 85 up until the early 90s like you know early 90s um and I left in 89 but there was that period of five years especially where Everybody used to travel from London and from Manchester and from Newcastle and from Leeds to Birmingham uh, for sessions, which, you know, was kind of really cool and it was great and it was a great scene. Um, and, you know, the, the, the scene is not what it was anymore there, but there is there's a resurgence and there's a, a revival um, and there's a festival now, the Birmingham Trad Festival, which is run by a, an incredible bunch of young musicians who who are flying the flag again for, for Irish music in Birmingham. So I'm hopeful that the spotlight will return um, to Birmingham. But we, we just had a, a great time when we were playing music and we had a band and we we did a bit of recording. And, you know, I was lucky to be in this group. I was going I, to ask about that. Well, I was the youngest. Um and I was a complete fraud. What, were they, what was the name of the band? Uh, Long Acre. Long Acre, yeah. Uh, and I was the worst. I mean, I was by far the poorest musician in, in the band at the time. Um, but I I was great crack. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I think they, they enjoyed having me there 
um, for the for the fun element. And, uh, you know, I was never shy to, to kind of talk. So I, I could do the, the bit of banter between the sets. Um, I had a lovely flash of you as being the Bez of Long Acre <laughs> and just kicking the foot out. <laughs> that was my role. I, I was the best kicker of the foot that, uh, that, that there was yeah. in Birmingham. But like, I don't know if you're familiar with a family of musicians called the Keneally's. Um, like, they're they're amazing. They came actually from from Bedfordshire, Bedford in in the south of England, but they became part of the Birmingham scene in that eighties period. Uh, and Mick Keneally, who is just a fantastic fiddle player and bazooki player, um, like Mick was, he was like heads and shoulders above me but possibly all of us in the band at that point in time um then you had joe malai just the most amazing banjo player like oh jesus uh brendan boyle <laughs> on the accordion and the glue that kind of made it all happen and made the band uh, an actual real thing was this guy that moved from paris to birmingham ivan Militich. And he was a guitarist and bazooki player who who just eat, breathed, drank, slept Irish music 24-7. Um, and he was the, the kind of force behind making the band and making kind of a lot of the sessions and parties happen in Birmingham around that time. Um, so a big shout out to, to kind of Ivan and Joe and Brendan and, and Mick um, for kind of making, making that scene kind of so vibrant really um and i as i say i was the youngest and i was i was definitely the the worst uh of, of the bunch but but i had i had probably probably had more fight and passion i think and determination to get better um than than possibly some of the rest and i i i kind of stuck with it you know what what did you learn from that first experience of being in a band and really you know working at it i don't know if i was aware that i was learning anything at the time uh like i was just soaking everything up and i was lucky i think that when i finally got to to kind of wring out the sponge or, or kind of squeeze it I, I i you know my own thing eventually came out but um I mean, I, I'd be telling lies if I, I was, I was equally in love with the drinking and the partying and the sessioning as much as I was the, the, the kind of getting better on, at my craft. Like, um, you know, it was all about the fun. Um, and, and, and like there was a lot of work. I mean, it just came with the territory. Like, I mean, when you weren't in the pub, um, I was at home or in, in my flat in, in Birmingham, which I shared with Ivan and Brendan Boyle. Um, and we just listened to music and learned music and learned tunes and, and obsessed over music every minute of the day. So um, at some point, yes, I, I, I don't know when it was, but there was definitely a moment where I thought, OK, if you're going to do this, you need to actually practice and put in proper work and figure out what you're doing and um but i i can't really say when that was but i think in the back of my mind i always uh 
maybe it was a blessing in disguise not being the good one in the band to start with. Like there was a fight and a and a, a determination to to get to be as good as the as they were, um, and mm. maybe that's that's something that I I've continued. Like I mean, I still want to be good at what I do, and I still work at it. You know. Right. Should we uh, have another tune? Yeah, um, I made a reference there to an F an F flute that my uncle. Um, so this this uncle of mine, um, Father Martin, who went off to Africa and became a missionary priest, and would only come back to Ireland every four or five years, you know, because you know he was building schools and churches and doing things for the community in um in north africa so um but he, he came home on one of these trips and he got this f flute from brendan mcmahon uh, and i've always had this because it was the first flute i owned and it was a kind of a key and a sound that i associate with that time i've always had a fondness with the f flute um so i'm going to play a couple of jigs for you on a new F flute that I got only three weeks ago. Um, and it was made for me by a guy in Belgium. Um, Geert Lejeune is his name. And it's it's just great. Like, I mean, there's just a great bang that comes <laughs> off these instruments. You know, they're so direct. They're in your face. Um, and they're, they're slightly, obviously, higher pitched. And they just allow you to be a bit more kind of drivey or, or you know kind of rhythmical with them they, you play them in a different way than you would a d flute or a c flute you know so i'll chance a couple of jigs these are just mm -hmm. kind of lively little tunes that i like to play on the f flute
I wanted to ask you then, um, after those tunes, um, just a wee bit more about um, growing up in Birmingham. But I, um, I, I suppose you're talking about the 70s and the 80s, right? Which is not an easy time to be Irish in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, well, it was kind of the 80s before I, uh, you know, uh, you know, started to kind of mingle in 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 any kind of a social sense. Um, so um, going to school was funny because like I knew I knew from very young that I was different. Uh, gosh, uh, like in that I had no interests in anything that were kind of British or English or, you know, I wasn't into pop music and I wasn't into sport like I wasn't I didn't follow a football team and I you know literally I, I i i hung out in in irish like there was a a club a, a catholic club that was associated with the school and the church that we went to and you know i went down there and hung out with you know second generation irish kids and we played pool and um you know there were country and irish bands and the odd little bit of Cayley music played at this club um and I just loved hanging out with old Irish guys. And I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I was just, I don't know, I always wanted to be Irish. Somebody said something to me one time and, and I, I was kind of hurt by it at the time, but he was right. Like, um, someone came up to me once and, and they said, you know what your problem is? He says, you're, you've, you're an Englishman who spent all his life trying to be an Irishman, you know? And I was like, what? Um, but in some ways, he kind of hit the nail on the head because uh, I never thought of myself as being English at all. Um, so, like, I don't have an English accent. Um, and did you have an English accent? You've already proven a few times you can be oh, a master at doing different would, accents. But I mean, did would you, you have a, an English accent? I had an English accent when I went to school. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it it just made it easier. Um, and was it was it generic English or Brummy? Oh, it was Brummy. Oh, I could talk in Brummy accent if you like. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, like uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's not very interesting though. You know, it's bit it's a bit flat. I don't like talking in in Brummy kind of speak. You know what I mean? But anyway, I don't. No, I used to work in a call center and make fake phone calls in Brummy accent. Oh, I can only imagine how bad it was. And I do think sometimes if I came from Manchester or Leeds, or even London, I might have been more inclined to speak with an English accent. But I, I always thought the Birmingham accent was a bit flat, you know. Um, it's only in mm. recent times now, of course, thanks to Peaky Blinders and stuff, it's become cool. But um, it's too late now, I can't go back. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, would, I would... My brothers and sisters, funny enough, my sister moved to Ireland a little uh, period before I moved to Ireland, she moved over in, I think, 88, and I moved over in 89. Um, but she has a very strong Irish accent. And my two brothers that have always stayed and never came to live in Ireland, they have a stronger Irish accent than a Birmingham accent. There's little, you know, inflections here and there that would let you know that they've been in England, but it's very, very west of Ireland too, you know. Um so that's 
that's something. And, I, I, and, and just talking about accents, you've been obviously been in America for a yeah. good number of years. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't hear any of I don't hear any of that in your accent. No, no, I I uh, I, I check myself often. Um, there was a, a funny thing happened um, <laughs> in the states. It's a thing I'm very conscious of because when I go back to Ireland, you know, people are almost listening out for it. Uh, they they yeah, like geez. you know you know I was at something last year and there were a bunch of musicians over from Clare and one of them said to me um hope you haven't become all American now and you're you're not kind of saying things like tomato and trunk and all these things that you might so I I said no not at all I wouldn't be doing that you know and I was on my best behavior all night and we're at this session over in Queens and we're playing away and everything's grand and I haven't let down my guard once I'm happy out and nobody's calling me on my accent it's all good and then a bunch of friends start, they're leaving and I said I'll see you next month right and the person calls me pronouncing your THs now Arby is what they said and all of a sudden oh that was it hanging a fence I was American do, do you like living in America uh, up until the current situation I was very happy living in America and uh i came here six years ago um i mean we tour here so much so like lunacy started lunacy started in 1997 that first tour of australia we thought it was just going to be a one-off we went had a great time came back went to our back to our respective jobs and our respective bands thought no more of it and then we got invited back again to, to, to tour in 98. Um, and we toured again in 98. Seamus Finneran put the tour together, those early tours for us. Um, and at the end of the tour in 98, we just sensed that there was something kind of special. And there was a, there was a, I don't know there was an interest in in the band and and we thought you know we shouldn't kind of let this opportunity go um and maybe we should kind of commit to it for a while um and I I probably had the least amount to to give up I I had a job um I was working for Claire FM radio I had a day job with them I was selling advertising uh, and then I had a radio program in the evenings on Claire FM, a traditional music program. Uh, and I was playing music in, in pubs. I was doing the session thing. And I was also a member of a group called Moving Cloud. But, you know, none of those things were was like full time kind of music oriented. You know, there was kind of dabbling in a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean Smith was a doctor like he was a GP. Um, Trevor. Hutchinson and Donna Hennessy, they were in Sharon Shannon's band, which was, you know, kind of going from strength to strength and scaling the heights. And they had a very nice little number there. Uh, and we decided to give Lunasa a go. And they threw all that by the side and, and, and kind of put everything into Lunasa. Um, Sean gave up Doctrine and the lads left Sharon. And, and I quit my bunch of kind of gigs that I was doing um and 
we just kind of ran with it and, and gosh thank god it it became kind of successful in in insofar as you know people were interested in it and and the timing was was good i mean it was a very healthy time for irish music i mean we, there was a lot of luck um but there was a lot of hard work also um but yeah we we got signed to an american label and that started i suppose the started us on or set us on the path of of doing heavy touring in america um so i've always toured the states from like 1999 um two or three times a year i've always loved america i've always found it the the best place to play irish music the audiences are phenomenal and they're hugely loyal and very knowledgeable and and there's such a strong irish traditional scene here um so that then when the opportunity arose six years ago when i, I kind of came to a crossroads in my life i said i'm gonna i'm gonna do what i've always wanted to do and that is immerse myself in the in the scene altogether in the states and there was mm -hmm. no looking back like i mean you know i'm lucky again that you know we, we tour so much then when i'm not on the road i get to be in new york city which is just such a hotbed for traditional irish music um and it's a transient city so you have this nucleus of great players but you also have people coming and going and and like you know you're never you're never sure who's going to arrive into a session in new york it could be easily it could be the same as saying you're having a session in Ennis or Galway and, and, and a musician just dropping in. You know, everybody goes through New York at some point. Um, so I, I've, I've been very lucky. When you said you were um, you were at a crossroads, um, do you mind me asking, like, what was going on there that sort of made uh, you think? Cause that's yeah, a I mean, my, I, my marriage went kind of... Um, by the way, like I, I stepped away from my marriage at that point. Um, and it just wasn't easy being in Ireland or especially in Clare. It was, you know, as separations are tough, like, um, and I, I had no family, you know, no kids. So it was easier to, to make that move. I just felt a change of scene would be easier on, on both me and my wife if I, kind of got out of the way uh and and in some ways i needed to get out of the way um and i, I it was an escape um and i owe a lot to the people here of new york for for taking me in you know and, and they made me feel incredibly welcome from from the get-go uh and i felt really like killian has lived in new york for for years and years so you know, Killian was was hugely important to me settling in in New York. Um, but then there were other players who I had known from coming through on tours and stuff that that stepped up and, you know, gave me gigs and sessions. And, you know, there's great musicians here, Tony DeMarco and, and you know, Brian Conway and Rose Flanagan and uh, Eamon O'Leary and Katie Lennan and Ivan Goff and... Patrick Ducey and just, you know, loads of great players around John Morrow. Uh, just incredible players. I, I Dylan Foley then was a, a, a young fiddle player that was emerging at the time. And I I just couldn't get enough of Dylan. And, and 
um, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out, but those, those few people, even just in a nutshell, and, and, the, and the people that own some of the bars around New York were very good to me, Danny McDonald and, and people like that. So it's been, been good. Killian being the, the piper with Lunasa, right? And Killian mm-hmm. Valley. Um, so, I mean, you only had, I guess, if you've been there for six years, you had maybe two years of relative normality. If, if anything counts for normality in the States, which... I lived there for 10 years and yeah. even even the normal isn't normal but I'm wondering just like um pandemic aside how you know you feel about the place um well I think if I lived in any other city or possibly any other state um it would impact me greater because obviously it's usually worrying to have the you know, the numpty trumpty at the helm. Um, but in New York, you can almost exist um, by not thinking or, or kind of having to to put up with the Trump element of, of each day. You know, um, it's again, it's a place unto itself. New York City is, you know, Um so I suppose ignorance is kind of bliss until something of, of, a, of a very huge magnitude kicks in like the pandemic where all of a sudden, you know, you, you're dealing with that um, very, very much on your doorstep. And you're also dealing with the fact that the guy that's supposedly going to get you out of this mess is is making it worse. Um so then you have to wake up to the fact that like, yeah, this this is a terrible time to be in, in America, really. Um, but I still love New York City. I mean, I, I've i been in my apartment here for four months. Um, the New York <laughs> City, the, the Manhattan that I knew and loved doesn't exist at the moment. So, uh, you know, me saying that I love living in, in, in New York, it doesn't doesn't hold kind of water with with what i've been experiencing for the last four months um but i do love brooklyn where i am um and things haven't really improved that much in terms of the pandemic like we're still somewhat on at the epicenter um but we've gotten better at getting out so i i make sure that i run every day and i make sure i go for big bike rides and I've, I've found kind of places where I can go where I don't have to encounter the uh, the huge numbers of people um, and for the rest of the time I'm I'm, I'm locked down here in, in the apartment um, but I, again it wasn't possibly where you wanted to go with it but it's opened another door for me in that like my days are now spent teaching I teach every day uh online and i have always liked teaching but because of the tour and i've never been able to do it on a, a kind of a regular kind of basis but um i have a i have a, a system and a, an itinerary and and uh you know i i do i do five lessons at least a day and and it's it's been great it's been usually important it's given me a, a purpose every day 
the last thing you would want would be for a lightning strike to hit your apartment and blow your gear up i'd imagine wouldn't that be just <laughs> a terrible thing to happen <laughs> imagine uh. just when you think nothing else can possibly go wrong uh yeah lightning struck and blew my computer well actually blew my modem which in turn blew my computer to smithereens so um just before yeah. i was going to hook up with you guys so yeah. thanks for pulling so, out all the stops to make it happen this way well th- thank you uh, this has been amazing and um as I, I mean i often feel like we've only scratched the surface but we have only scratched the surface because we've got so much else that we still want to talk to you about so maybe we can um uh schedule a further a further chat <laughs> well i tell you we, we, no we we'll do it again absolutely yeah yeah do you think we could finish off with it one more set of tunes or a tune yeah yeah uh I'll, I'll go i'll go back to mike's whistle and i'm only going to go to this because um there's a couple of tunes of my own that i i, I wanted to kind of play Um we've talked about you know the older tunes and um the tradition that's been passed on um but i think it is also important to um kind of add a little bit to the tradition as well mm-hmm. if you can yeah uh, and i'm not a prolific composer by any means but uh i i write a few tunes here and there um so i'm going to play two these are actually two tunes that that mike enjoyed and i'm playing them on mike's b flat whistle and when i recorded them on on uh, my solo album um from 2013 mike really liked these tunes um and it was another source of, of fun for Mike because I recorded them on a B-flat whistle, but I didn't have, if you remember back to the interview, I didn't have a Mike B-flat whistle at the time. So I played them on just an old battered generation tin whistle in B-flat that I had. Uh, and Mike always, oh, I love those tunes, but they would have sounded much better if you had my whistle. <laughs> you know, he likes to go on. So like um so i i do play them on that whistle now um a lot of the time so the first tune uh yeah apart from music the only other thing i had grown up that i was equally passionate about was playing snooker um so i was a i was a pretty good snooker player and and you know i, I kind of spent a lot of time in in those establishments um and so when I had my house in Clare, I had a snooker table in it and I used to have it run a little snooker tournament each Christmas. And a neighbour of mine was a great snooker player also. And we would always end up kind of having this little uh, kind of competition to see who would win the kind of Christmas trophy or maybe even win a turkey or whatever for Christmas. So I wrote the first tune I, I used to win this thing year upon year uh, just by a by a hair's breadth. But this particular year, I was so far in front, like I was like six frames in front with like two to go. And I just thought, I can't lose this. I can't like it's it's impossible. So, of course, I took my eye off the ball, pardon the pun. And the next thing is my neighbor, Ray, beat me on a black ball and I lost the competition. I flumped it like so. um I wrote the tune and I, I called it Ray's Revenge. Nice. Named after 
that uh, event. And then I, I play a tune after it called the Hula Hoop. Um, and that was my attempt to get rich quick. Um, I, I thought maybe if I could write a tune that might be the basis of a an Irish dance show, maybe I could make as much money as the guys from Riverdance and Feet of Flames and all those things. Um, so I thought, yeah, it'd be great. I did have a dance show based on hula hooping. Um, so this was going to be the signature tune. Uh, obviously, it, it didn't didn't work. Uh, Yet. So I'll play those two tunes. And then the last tune is uh, a tip of the hat to the greatest tin whistle player of all time, Mary Bergen. It's a tune she recorded. Thanks so much, Kevin. Kevin, I, listen, before we get into this tune as well, sorry, Darren's going to kill me, but I just I have to ask you a bit about the snooker. That, that you, you're... <laughs> you're your your first tune sounds it just the thing that flashed into my head was Steve Davis against Dennis Taylor oh. the, the black ball finish that well that that whole period of my life I mean that I had no interest in sport like as I say no football no nothing but I mean we would be glued absolutely to the crucible theater for the the world you know the 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 embassy world championships i mean that was everything and and that game is david it, vine is oh david vine and and all the great commentators that were there and you know ray Ted Reel and rex williams that all be there oh and poor i mean not that this is going to make the podcast but poor, i was devastated last week to discover willie thorne died like uh he was another great character and and uh commentator from from, from your well, neck of the woods as well playing. wasn't he yeah, he was Leicester. He was in the Midlands. Yeah, yeah. Aye. Aye, um, aye, but aye. no, snooker, snooker was everything. Kirk Stevens in his all-white suit. Ah, the Canadian. Oh, Bill Werbenuk and his his eight pints before he went on. Yeah, you know uh, um, the, the Oh well, I mean, just uh, Alec Alec Higgins. Yeah, Alex Higgins licking the cue ball. That's you it. Know, like the way he used to lick the cue ball and between he'd, friends. He'd, and... he'd tap his cue off the side of the table and. I mean, my, my hero is Jimmy White. Like, I mean, I, I have to... Uh-huh. He, he was just... And he never went on to win the flipping World Championships. For no, me, the greatest remember, player of all time. Do you remember the semi-final he played with Alex Higgins um, the year yeah. that Alex Higgins won for the second time? That was just a phenomenal... Like, the most phenomenal Jim, game, Jim, I think. It well, Jimmy should have won. He should have won. He sh- well, he should have won a, a lot of the finals he made it into, but... He, I don't know what it was. He had a mental block or, or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, those 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 days. And it, for me, that snooker period in the eighties is akin to what happened in Irish music in the seventies. Like it was just incredible. The revival in Irish music in the seventies with the Bathies and Planksty and Didan and you know how am I making this analogy with snooker in the eighties? But for me, it was it was like the same rock stars almost of of snooker uh emerged all of those players you mentioned there like the characters um and i think they were they were what made it exciting um and and maybe that excitement isn't there anymore it, and maybe we could draw the comparison to the music you've got better players now but the sport isn't as it's, it's not as interesting and and you know people aren't watching it in the droves and also, you know, I, I, at the time when we were watching it, there was, you know, there was only three channels or four channels, right? And that was one of them. And that was just, and there wasn't that much to look forward to uh, TV-wise, you know, when it came to live sports. So that was, um, 
yeah it's like me me uh, you know even as as the sort of popularity of tv snooker started to tail off you know um some of my fondest memories are sitting watching the snooker with my mum <laughs> My mum's running. My mum's running commentary. Who had never been would never have gone near a snooker hall in her life, and she's watching somebody, and she's like, "Ah, oh, not that one." But not that, that is, one. That, you'll never. I get, know exactly. Yeah, I have the very same memory. I, I honestly, I mean, that was the thing. My mum with snooker, and with boxing. <laughs> like I remember, my mum like her commentary during like Muhammad Ali uh, fighting or whoever. And and the same thing, like, oh, and she loved Muhammad Ali. She just loved him as she did Dennis Taylor or Alex Higgins. And she, you know, obviously hated Steve Davis. And uh, as we all did, <laughs> I, 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 grew, I grew to love Steve Davis. Uh-huh. And I, I couldn't believe it when I when I figured out, like, Steve Davis is a funny man. Like, he's hilarious. He's very funny. And he's, but like, at the time, he was just this cold you know emotionless like just machine and so we we didn't like him but um no i mean my mom i i i can just remember all of those things sitting down watching the those major events and and hearing that commentary yeah yeah yeah. Thanks for thanks for actually reminding me of that. No, you're welcome. Thank you for. I'm glad we managed to get to that right at the end. So uh, let's uh, let's crack into the tunes. And thanks again, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks, guys, and continued success. Looking forward to tuning in again.
That was Kevin Crawford. So I think the the million dollar question is when we come into a two hour plus episode, do we make it a two parter or uh, or do you as a listener just want to get stuck in like we get stuck in? We are. We, there's so many pros and there's so many cons for each. We're at a loss. Let us know. Like, yeah, like we'd would love to know you're thinking of it. I mean, there's nothing to stop you, you know, taking a rest halfway through. What I feel is that as um, I really, really feel that if you stay through for the whole thing, that you get something different out of it than if you chop it into a couple of chunks completely um so it seems i i just i don't know what it is it, it's um maybe it's just because i get so immersed in the conversation that it that it, i i really feel like um there's something there's, i look i'm just gonna say this right i feel personally changed by each one of these interviews that we do. Seriously. And I mean that like I it's it's like um it's like my heart res- sort of assumes a slightly different shape after each one of them. That's that's what I f- feel about these. And so you know, 35 minutes, two and a half hours it you know, it's all the same. It just um, and I, I had that feeling. I've had that feeling so profoundly since we started doing this, you know. Um, particularly once we have found our feet and we we weren't worrying so much about some of the technical aspects of things, and we were able to, and we had figured out what each of us were doing in terms of um, asking questions and developing a sort of chemistry. Just uh, it's. Um, I mean, that's why I do this, right? That's why I. I got into radio that's why i got into interviewing people that's why i was drawn to talking to talking to older people about their life stories and collecting their life stories i just feel like um like a like my like a shifting riverbed right each 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 passing tide the the, the floor of the river changes somewhat and that 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 that's me right and that's what happens with these and so i'm so fucking grateful for the chance to do this I mean so yeah so I'm not going to add anything because I really enjoy what it's lovely thanks Kevin Crawford thank you thanks Kevin it was a it was a ball and thanks for going above and beyond like at the start I said incredibly generous uh, Kevin is and really Kevin if you do end up hearing this which I think you will (laughs) uh Thank you so much. You know everything that uh, that you actually you had to to do to to get this across the line. So I appreciate it, mate. And I, d- I do want to reiterate this as well that that um, when we mentioned in the interview that his house was struck by lightning, that is actually literally what happened. So just in case yeah. anyone thinks we're just we're just blagging, you know. And look, yeah. some interesting things happened when we hung up the phone, which we're not going to get into, but. <sighs> spicy stuff next episode (laughs) (laughs) next time we chat to him so all right right. that's us if you want to support the podcast quickly head over to patreon.com forward slash blarney pilgrims and you can become a patreon saint and 
you know, that makes you'll me feel so, so happy. good. You'll feel so good. So Your reward will be great in heaven, and yeah. our reward will be slightly greater here on earth. So go for it. God bless. Hi, my name is Rosa. Please become a subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.